The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by musician, actor, producer, Joey Badass. Earlier this summer, Joey celebrated the 10-year anniversary of his debut mixtape, 1999. He was 17 when he dropped it, just a junior in high school, growing up in Bed-Stuy, obsessing over 90s hip-hop. The mixtape, which, by the way, I remember distinctly downloading from Dat Piff my senior year of high school, seemed to sit at the intersection of the past and the present. He was a new-school rapper with old-school influences. And for those disenchanted with the hip-hop of the early 2010s, he was a beacon of hope. But then as it always seems to, life got in the way. Tragedy, loss, success, heartbreak, two friends and capital Steez and Junior B that left us much too soon. All of that life, all the messiness, the pain, the joy, the triumph, is on full display in Joey's excellent new record, 2000. That life is also the subject of this conversation. But before we jump in, I have to issue a warning. Around the 30-minute mark, there is a extended conversation around suicide. By the end, I hope you'll find it powerful and healing, but if you or someone you know is in need of free and confidential help, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline 
by dialing 988. We'll also be including resources for mental health awareness at talkeasypod.com. For today, Joey and I unpack the five-year break from his last record, All-American Badass, the 10-year anniversary of 1999, his upbringing in East Flatbush, the first rap he ever performed, the legacy of the late Capital Steez, how he managed to move forward in the aftermath of his passing, and a whole lot more. So, without further ado, this is Joey Badass. Joey Badass, pleasure to meet you. Mr. Sam, nice to meet you too, man. First question, are you going to wear your sunglasses the whole time? Do you want me to? You want me to take them off? You want to look at my eyes? You, you have such nice eyes. eyes. I have pretty eyes, I do. Come on. Wow, it's much brighter in here. That's crazy. <laughs> it's so bright. It's been five years since your last record. A lot has changed in the country since then. A lot has probably changed for you, too. Before we get into the new album, you have this quote. You said, I understand I have to rebuild morale with my supporters. Right. What made you feel like that was something you needed to fix? So... Over the five years, I would see comments like, I was a freshman in high school when Joey dropped All-American Badass. And now I'm <laughs> now I'm about to advance for my first year in college. You know, so seeing things like that really made me kind of internalize. Like, damn, I took myself back to high school. Like, how would I feel if, like, Kanye ain't dropping five years or like J. Cole ain't dropping five years. You know what I'm saying? Like people who really inspired and influenced me and motivated me like for them to go away for that long. I'm sure it would do something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you forever love that artist, but you have so many questions. You'd be a little bit heartbroken. A little bit heartbroken. Doubts can start to creep in your mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is this person going to be the same they don't even like this person. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to care. You know what I mean? Like, by the time he finally does decide, you know, because it's been five years, but even four years, they're like, when is this ever going to come out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> At that point, nobody knows how long it's going to be of a drought. And thinking about that young kid in high school yeah. that could feel that way, mm-hmm. did that produce anxiety in you to get this out? No. The anxiety was kind of, I put my own anxiety on myself. I wish I would have looked at it like that, so black and white. Like, these people just want my music, mm-hmm. you know? But instead it was like, damn, I've been gone five years. How do I want to approach? What am I going to say? What's my deal? What's this? Like, you know what I'm saying? It, it was all of that pressure. And then also having great ideas, but already feeling like you spent too much time. It would be three years down the line. And it's like, all right, well, this album I was working on for three years, I want to go in a totally different direction now. So I was like, okay, cool. At three years, okay, cool. <laughs> What's another year? Then it turns to two years. But, you know, that happens from point to point. It's like as an artist, you're navigating, you're trying to find a direction. And once you create this gap that's big enough, then, yeah, you start to feel the anxiety. Like, you almost feel like a window is closing. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I got to put something out. Like, I'm seeing my relationships with my fans or my clientele, like how I started to look at it too, like dwindling. That was uh, one of the realizations I came to 
that really helped me figure out what I wanted to do. Because over these last five years, like I've made literally probably 500 songs. But this is the first project that I walked into not knowing what I was creating. At first, the vision was a more versatile type of project. So I'm like, okay, I got these type of songs, these type of songs, these type of songs, and I'm just gonna take the best of that and put it together. But every time I came to a point and I did that, it didn't feel cohesive. Mm -hmm. They were disparate pieces that didn't feel like. Yeah, it was like things I wanted to make sense. I wanted to gel and I just didn't feel like it was gelling. That had frustrated me for a long time. And I had this breakthrough when I put out my record, The Revenge. And what it showed me is that I totally read the room wrong. What happened? Well, it's not what my fan base wanted. It's to this day, it's like, I don't regret putting out. I actually needed to put that record out so I could understand what it was that I needed to do. Mm -hmm. People expect a certain type of sound from me. And I always knew that, you know, coming up as an artist, but I looked at it more as a challenge. Like, oh, y'all think I could only do this. It kind of became an early mission early in my career to prove so many people that like I was so versatile. Like, yeah, you think I'm just a boom bap guy, but I can do anything. You know what I mean? It's not about doing anything. The best thing that could happen is for you to have an identity as an artist. Mm -hmm. And I happen to have an identity. That was where I needed to build my morale because, you know, I was making moves more for like me and wanted to do different things. And you know, that's life, that's whatever, you know? But the people don't understand that. You're not dropping music, they look at it like, you're not making music. <laughs> Literally, I'm, go I'm in the studio every week, you know what I'm saying, multiple times a week, even in between acting, doing shows, doing movies. Music is my first love. They don't know about those 500 songs. Nah, they don't know about those 500. They, they wasn't with me shooting in the gym. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like That totally reshaped my vision. And I was struggling with the direction that like the revenge was in, like trap style, drums, more upbeat tempo. I was like, oh, no, nah, these people expect a certain package from me. And the thing is, I have that. I was just so blinded by all the experimentation. But at the same time, 2000 was this concept I always had at the back of my mind. I just didn't know when I was going to be necessarily ready to do it. And the moment that I realized that I read the room wrong and how I had to come, figured out my approach, I was like, this is 2000. Okay, so now that the record is here, why don't we just start with... The opening track. It's called The Baddest. Yeah, let's do it. Take five years off, cause my shit is timeless. My core got my back, so I'm standing on my promise. These niggas only back by their labels, they all spineless. I'm back by popular demanding on that time. And I popped out. 2012, y'all wasn't outside then. Ten years later, tell me why y'all still hiding. Niggas know who great the fuck your favorite. I'm the greatest day. Never could the greatest, and I did it with no major. I made a lane for niggas by going my own way. I paved the way for a lot of these rappers you see today. So act like you know, bitch. I've been had the flow, penetrating souls. Who the best MCs? Kenny Joe. Me and Cole, the Holy Trinity is that nine fives and infinity energy. Knowing when I'm going to forever remember me. So show me love when I'm still in the vicinity and show some sympathy for niggas who be moving finicky. Those vocals get me every time. I know. <laughs> in the five years since you took off. Can you kind of pinpoint how your approach has changed? Can you hear it in that song? Absolutely. You see, that was the last song I made for the project. I had the whole album. I just didn't have an intro. 
it was going to start with make me feel. But I felt like there was something that needed to happen or needed to be said or like there was a certain way the vibe had to be laid out before that. And with having a project in a direction and knowing what I was aiming for made that the creation of that project like clockwork. Mm -hmm. Got my guys in the studio. Shout out to Chris McClenny, Eric Ark Elliott. You know, I gave him my vision of what I wanted to do. The inspiration was Grand Poobah's, uh, um, Grand Poobah, why am I blanking on the name of the song? It's one of my favorite songs ever. I like it. That was inspiration. And that was actually off of his album, 2000. Mm -hmm. That was dropped in the year 1995, which is my birth year. <laughs> I knew I had to start the album with some like, like just a statement, like just a clever way of coming back. And I was like, I could take five years off because this shit is timeless. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I got it from there. Everything just wrote itself. The record starts and you immediately address exactly the five-year gap we've been talking about. Yeah. With the 10-year anniversary of 1999, you said something I liked. You said, if 1999 was about a kid from Brooklyn, New York, trying to make it big and put his friends on, 2000 is about that same kid who's now a man and on the other side of the fence. And I think to understand the man you are today sitting here with me, we have to understand the kid a little bit more. In 1995, you're the first in your immediate family to be born in the U.S. Yeah. You grow up in East Flatbush, section of Brooklyn. From an early age, you love two things, as I understand it, Hot Wheels and poetry. Is that where your love of rapping starts? Yeah. You see, I identified poetry as the music I would hear. When I got introduced to poetry in first grade, shout out to Miss Bova. <laughs> when I got introduced to it in first grade, I immediately made the connection like, oh, this is what Biggie does. Because I would, you know, see Biggie on the TV. I watched the videos. He was like, you know, my mom was an avid music fan, rap fan, all around music fan. So she played it around me. I was like, this is what Biggie does. I'm like, I'm into this. And then from there, that's where it started. I, I started writing raps initially as poetry, but like my poems will always be like rap-like. And I would, yeah, I would enter poetry contests and win them and stuff. Was your first verse given to you by your cousin Richie? Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember what it was? My name is Little J and I got the nine. You mess with me and I blow up your mind. They hating cause I be on my grind and I always shine. Why you acting like you sell Glocks before I put a pipe bomb in your mailbox? You want to become a model. <laughs> I live your face bluer than a hypnotic bottle. <laughs> You're six years old delivering that. I was like six, seven, eight, <laughs> nine, something like that. But yeah, exactly. No way I wrote that. <laughs> like, it's a very sophisticated. Little Jay and I got the nine. You mess with me and I'm like, yo, the bar for me was, why you acting like you sell Glocks? I'll put a pipe on me at Mailbox. Like, what? I didn't know what any of that was. And it's funny because one day my mom had a friend over and they were talking and like the question became like what I wanted to be when I grow up. And I was like, I want to be a rapper. It was like, well, if you want to be a rapper, rap. Like, let's hear something. And I spit that verse and it was laughing. <laughs> Not in a way like that was trash, <laughs> but in a way where it's like they knew I didn't know what I was talking about. And my mom was like, you know what a nine is? And I was like, no. <laughs> and then she told me and she was just like, if you're going to do this, be true to you. Talk about what you know. Isn't it unbelievable that 
20 years later, you can perform that verse uninterrupted. Like it's embedded inside of you. It's embedded. It's so crazy that you knew to ask me that because <laughs> it's really like tatted on my brain. Your mother and father split up around five, right? Mm-hmm. My parents split up before I was one. It's not a contest, but <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> you said growing up alone with your mother that she was forced to work two jobs to support the both of us. And I often had a lot of time alone. I used to come home from school. <laughs> when you say it like that, it sounds like mad harsh like she was enforced to work two jobs she chose to work two jobs to support both of us just to clear that up well she did what she had to do she did what she had to do absolutely which required working two jobs and sometimes because of that you'd come home and see eviction notices Mm. on the door how do you make sense of that time now Ooh, there's something there Mm, there's something there gotta revisit that with my with my therapist it's the first time you've been tense since we started. Yeah, I haven't spoken about this in a long time. So it's like, it's a realization like, ooh, I could see how it's making me feel. Like, you know, I'm aware that like there's something here. And how does it make you feel? Yeah, I'm trying to go back there because this is definitely something that I buried that like I haven't faced. You feel me? So, I mean, shit, it was devastating. <laughs> That's probably the most prominent time in my life where I felt that emotion of devastation, you know, coming home from school. And then it's like, you know, my mom is at work. So I was coming home from school by myself from an early age, like since I want to say like fourth grade. It's not a contest though. (laughs) 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 So doing all of that, you know, navigating through the jungle because mm-hmm. I'm definitely aware of my surroundings and then getting to what's supposed to be a safe place and, like, I can't even go in my house. Like, there's a lock on the door. I don't even have the key to this lock. What the fuck is this? Luckily, my grandma lived, like, 20 blocks away, so I would just get back on the bus and go the opposite direction. I always say there is a realization that I came to, like, something about my mom working two jobs put a battery in my back and drove me as a teenager to do what I did. You know, like I felt like I had to help my mom. That gave me a different drive, you know, that fueled me. At the time, I don't think there was any other kids with the same fire that I had, you know? Like I I hated that. I hate seeing my mom struggle. I I hated seeing my mom ask people for money. I hated feeling like, shit, we really might get kicked out. You know what I'm saying? Because we actually never got put out by the grace of God. Like, we always got saved in the last minute. There was always that fear, like, damn, where are we going to go if we get kicked out of here? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I think you captured the conditions of your childhood pretty early on in a song from 1999. I thought we'd play for a moment. Let me see if I could guess. It's a daily routine. I was going to do the one you wrote in your mom's room. Waves. Yeah. They write that in my mom's room. This is the song Waves off the mixtape 1999 by Joey Badass. Uh, since 9-5, mama been working 9-5 And I know the landlord fed up with our lives So we pray to the guys, the jobs, and the our lives To keep us safe and watch our lives Cause all we trying to do is do good I put on my hood when I walk through hoods Cause these niggas these days 
but Sam. <laughs> what, <laughs> what is it, Sam? <laughs> what do, what do you want to ask me now? <laughs> Making it sound like I'm giving you grief here. Nah, nah, not at all. Not at all. Actually, this is actually um, positive. What were you thinking? Nah, it's just emotional, man, because... I was visiting back that place, talking about like how I felt in that time and me subconsciously like expressing it through my art like that. Like I knew that's what I was doing, but it's just so crazy to go back and see the way I use that. Mm. Man, it like makes me emotional, bro. <laughs> like heavily. And it's, you know, it was, it was an interesting day. I remember coming home from school and this is around the time I first started smoking. I was high as hell. It was actually the first time I think I wrote high. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Um, I would do that sometimes because it's like I'm a kinetic type of writer or person. Like, I can't sit still in one place or I can't use the same writing technique every time. Like, I got to switch it up. I got to move it around. Sometimes I got to be in a whole different room. So something just pulled me to my mom room. I feel like it could be something I could extract from that. And that song came out of it. Let me tell you, I've tried writing high. Never turns out like that. <laughs> you know, I imagine to record that song, you had to use the microphone that was given to you for Christmas, I believe, uh, around the age of 15. By this time, I had read up and got a new one. You upgraded? I upgraded, yeah. Using the one that I got for Christmas was $100. It was a USB condenser mic. I did more research, realized how much that kills the quality so two years later, I traded in my Nikes for a new mic. I believe it was my Scotty Pippins or my cough drop phone posits. And I flipped those and I bought myself a new mic. It was like two, I think it was like $300. You had this quote, you said, um, making music like this alone in my room gave me the freedom to set up a microphone and yell as much as I wanted to. Did you find that pouring the emotions into the microphone helped you make sense of those emotions? Absolutely. You know, writing has always been very therapeutic for me. Just shit, moving my hand with a pen, because I used to draw a lot when I was a kid too. It's always been a therapeutic process. So all I did was I just upped it. Like I took it off of the paper and then I started expressing it. And that's really where the emotions got transmuted. You know what I'm saying? Because it's one thing to put it down and it's coming straight from your mind. But then it's another thing to speak it out loud and share it with people, you know? It freed me. What did your mom think at that age as you were alone in your room, recording, writing, figuring this out? My mom never made me feel discouraged. She always made me feel that I could do anything. She just stressed the importance of, like, being knowledgeable and educated. You know, for her, it was about just pass your classes, you know? But she never made me feel limited or made me feel like I wasn't doing the right things with my time. And I'm so grateful for that because I know a lot of people don't have the same experience. She probably didn't have that same experience. Yeah, I don't think she did. <laughs> now that you say, yeah, I, I, I don't think she did, you know? She also wasn't born in America, right? So it's like a whole different mindset too. Yeah, man. So with the support of your mother, you start making music at around age 15. And in preparation for this talk, I was trying to imagine what a 15-year-old Joey Badass looked and sounded like. And that, 
obviously was proving to be difficult until I discovered this video from YouTube. Should we take a look? Yeah, let's do it. When you got a nigga nice like this, spend the pen and shit. Because I'm smooth with the ink, but never had good penmanship. But that's irrelevant, just had to get it off my chest. Like a Playboy bunny, I'm now exposing the breast. And when these niggas come at me, I just gotta laugh. They say they flow crazy, but I'm a psychopath. And I never break my neck when the ass will pass. I've been putting candles and cakes like six and a half. And I ain't talking about my birthday. Your girl got a cake like every day is a birthday. Everybody asking now how I know when the first place she live in my crib like my crib is the birth uh, just know when she with you asking for the loop and still the vanishes and jackson coop she comes to my crib and gave me some two and by 6 a.m she gets the ugly look a nigga got balls that's why i got braces as a girl get my whole mouth incarcerated because i spent it like i'm biggie in the past like i'm ancient and if you think you spit high then watch me spit saying look logically i define astronomy i said i, said I, I live on kind of finally spitting hot meteorology <laughs> Man. What do you see when you... I see a genius. <laughs> Are you making a joke? You're being sincere. No, I'm being so serious. The day before that video was recorded, I had an idea just come to me, hit me. I just got off the train, me and my homie Dylan, we was walking home from school. Well, we were walking home from the train station from school or whatever. And the idea just came to me. And Dylan had a camera. So I looked at Dylan and I told him, yo, tomorrow... Bring your camera. We're gonna record a freestyle video of me rapping, obviously, and it's gonna go viral. It was like, boom, I'm gonna record this video because the way I looked at it, I'm from Brooklyn, I'm 15 years old, I know I'm nice. There's no way it won't at least make it to World Star. I was like, there's no way. Next day, Dylan brings his camera. So I recruit my homie Shaquille, my homie Danico, who's uh, beatboxing, and Kashif, and my homie Kashif. I told him, I said, yo, I need you to beatbox. Because he used to do that sometimes in the hallway. And I was like, Shaquille and Kashif, I need y'all to just be there. <laughs> and I don't care what I say, you hype it up. <laughs> like, I don't care if you understand what I'm talking about. You hype it up. Because you're my friend and you're going to do this for me. And we recorded the video. I took it home. I must have sent it to World Star Hip Hop at least 70 times. They never put it up at the time. Mm -hmm. So I decided to put it up on my own YouTube. But what I did was, for the title, I put 15-year-old freestyles for Worldstar. And, you know, I put my contact information and all that at the end of the video. But that's how my first manager, Johnny Scheiss, found me. That's how he discovered me. And he was like, I saw your video on Worldstar. <laughs> at that point, I knew I was a genius. <laughs> I was like, I was a marketing genius early on. It just came to me, bro. It's unbelievable. That next year, while you're still at... Edward R. Murrow High School. You, Capital Steez, CJ Fly, and Powers Pleasant form Pro Era. In those early years, you said, we were constantly pushing each other, especially me, Steez, and CJ. At the time, we were literally coming to school on each day, ready to tear each other's heads off. What did that energy feel like? It was friendly competition, because everybody thought they were the best. All three of you did? Yeah including other kids in the school. They thought themselves were the best too. But we knew we were the best and now we were competing to be the best amongst ourselves. But we knew Steve was the best. We knew it. We just didn't want to admit it. You knew early on that he was the best? Oh yeah, for sure. He was different. For me, like he was rapping like that for a long time. 
double entendres and stuff like that. He's the reason why I started rapping like that. Cause he put he started putting me on a different artist like MF Doom. And then from MF Doom, I started falling down the rabbit hole of, you know, other rappers, which made me to just start diving to the history of hip hop music, period, and to break out of whatever the radio and the TV was feeding me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? I started to do my own research and diving in. And that's the combination of that plus trying to keep up with Steez every day is what advanced me. So from 15 to 17, I got really fucking good, really fast. Would you sneak into the auditorium at school to do this? Absolutely. So we had, uh, my school was like a theater slash musical school. And an auditorium at the back of the stage, they had this um, wardrobe room. And we would go in there because nobody would be in there. And we would set a mic up. Because the music hallway was like literally right behind that. My boy Powers, because he was a music student, he would bring the equipment and set it up and we would record right there in like the wardrobe room. And it had so many clothes around, so it was like perfect for recording music. Could you tell even then that you were taking it maybe more seriously than others? Oh yeah, for sure. We was taking it more seriously than grown men who were doing it. You know, for us, it was really all about the art. At that time, it was really about the craft. You know what I'm saying? Like, who got the most wittiest bars and puns? Like, that's what it was solely about. That's how we was measuring the skill. Like, it just so happened that we were also able to make songs. You know what I'm saying? Because some people have that problem. Like, they rap really good, but, like, that doesn't mean they necessarily make a song good. But we also did that. So then from there, it just became about, okay, now how can we make the best songs, you know? Is survival tactics... The first song that you think, we got this right? Yes, 100%. First of all, the energy on that was crazy. We all went to my crib after school one day because it started, at, by then it was known that like, you know, I was recording myself, I was getting really good. I was a rapper in the group, but I was also the engineer. I was the art editor. <laughs> I was the video editor, <laughs> the video maker, the ideas, and then, Eventually, Steve told me I should be the leader. But anyway, we recorded that song in my room, and I remember recording my verse. And, you know, it was the same verse, but it was with lower energy. And Steve was like, yo, let me show you how to do it. (laughs) And then he recorded his verse, just like how it sounds on the track. And then I re-recorded mine as it sounds on the track. And then Survivor Tactics came, and we all knew. We all knew we had it. Like we had the whole epitome of what we were creating. Like we knew that right there was it. And we put it out. This is Survival Tactics from the mixtape 1999 featuring Capital Steez. Niggas don't want war, I'm a Martian Where the army is Spartan Spawn with a knife in the missile fight Get your intel right, your intelligence is irrelevant But it's definite, I spit more than speech impediments Brooklyn's the residence, the best and it's evident We got them niggas P.E. nuts Like they elephants, throw them in a truck if they hate though We don't give a fuck as long as we collect our peso Yeah, collect peso You knew when you made that song And then released a music video That you had something Oh yeah, especially when we shot that video when we put it up, that feeling right there, that rush. Because what it was too, remember Shipes discovered me at 15, but I sat in the rafters for like the next two years. Remember my first drop then comes out 17. Pretty much, essentially I've been waiting for my shot this whole time. 
And for the first video to be like, you know, with my crew, with like my big brother, you know what I'm saying? And we killing it. Like that rush was crazy. You know, we was already making a name for ourselves locally, but putting that out there to the world really started like blowing it out proportion to shit. We couldn't even understand how much it was doing, you know? We'll be right back after a quick break. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know the fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. 
Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Once you put the video out in 2012, there are two days in that year that I imagine forever changed your course. The first one happens in the spring semester when the New York Times and Vice comes to your high school and begins to interview you and the whole pro-era squad. That day was like a movie. It was, I feel like a hero, <laughs> like a superhero that day. Like, yeah, I'm the guy from here on out. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, try, I was telling you guys, but now you see it. When I was setting up the day just now, yeah. It looked like you were playing something in your head. What was going on? I was playing the beginning of that video. I just woke in, in my school and I'm talking to my my gym teacher, Mr. Black, and he's like, um, you know, we're, we're, we're joking. He's like, oh, Javon's my second favorite student. And he's like, you know who's first? Everybody else. Like, that was a little joke. But then I remember walking past the alumni wall and I think I said, my name is going to be here. I think I said that in the video, you know, so I was just going back to that moment. Because now my name is there. <laughs> is it? Yeah. And, and that was the most, like, I always knew that my name was going to be there. Like, I love that they put that there. It was like right at the intro of the school, right? Right as soon as, at the entrance, I mean, as soon as you walk in, you see the wall of famous alumni. And I, I used to see Adam Yacht, Basquiat, Lil Mama. So that day when they came, that's the day I cemented it. I knew my name was going to be up there. I always thought it, but that day, it actually became real. What did that day do to you? Did it change something for you? Oh, yeah. That day blinded me um, because I was so happy, and I wanted to share that happiness with all of my friends. You know what I mean? Like To me, it wasn't just my moment. Like It was our moment. I just happened to be like staring the ship. When you say, I was blinded by that day, what does that mean? So there's moments that happened when I was younger and I was coming up for the first time that the moments were so great and so promising that I couldn't see any ills. Here's a kid who the motivating force is trying to save, help his mom. And all of these great opportunities start to happen that pretty much promised that all I see is the light. At the end of the tunnel. That's it. All I see is the positive. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't see the negative. I don't see what it's doing to the people around me. I don't see how they're changing based upon 
my success or the success that they knew were coming to me. Especially when I start the timeline, like when people started hanging out with me, certain people in my life. Because, you know, I got signed two years before that day. Right. Even when that first happened two years ago, certain people started like changing and like position themselves towards me or like with me. But then that day even more, cause now it's like, oh shit, this is happening. It really starts happening in the summer of 2012 when 1999 drops. Again, most of this record is recorded and mixed in your bedroom. You're 17, it's an immediate hit. Pro Era is kind of coming into its own. The group is making a name for itself. But we've been talking about the highs of this time. And I guess I want to know how you square away that night of December 23rd of 2012. When your friend, your collaborator, Capital Steez, takes his life at the age of 19. Mm. Okay. Um, I usually don't like to go here, but I don't feel offended by your approach. Usually I feel offended by people's approach. But, um... Oh, that, that night shattered my world. Shattered my world. Like I said, like, everything was going so right. And, you know, we knew Steve was depressed for some time. We were kids, though. Like, we didn't know what to do about it. And for me, the way I was looking, I was like, yo, bro, like, in a minute, we ain't going to be depressed. You know what I'm saying? Like, bro, like, yo, just be patient. You feel me? Like, things are changing. Things are changing, bro. Like, you can't say that this isn't any progress that we've made. Like, I get it. You might not be where you want to be, but we're not where, where we were. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're moving, bro. People know our names. Like, we're doing 70,000 on YouTube, respectively. You did your own video, 70,000 views. You know what I'm saying? He said I don't want his 70K. Now my inbox filled up five rolls. I got my empire all built up. So I'm looking at it like a full optimist. And I was also the person in the driver's seat. I was the person with the connection. Shipes came to me. I brought my homies with me to Shipes. And I told Shipes, if you're going to take me, you're going to take anybody. So my perspective was definitely different. And I remember Steez having a hard time emotionally trying to get me to understand his perspective. You know what I'm saying? Because he's like, yo, bro, like, I hear what you're saying, but I'm two years older than you. I'm 19, I'm already a year out of high school. Steez also didn't have a real room where he was like living in. At least he didn't feel like it, like he was living like in the attic of like his mom's house. So he was tired of that shit, you know what I mean? Like he felt like he was too grown for that. And yeah, he do have some success, but why is Joey making the money? You know what I'm saying? Like th those things started to contribute and I couldn't really understand that pain. Like I understood the pain of the patience, but I, I didn't understand the pain, the combination of his whole world. You know what I'm saying? And his perspective. And I remember him like understanding that I didn't understand that mm. and being frustrated with me over that. You know what I'm saying? Because at the time I'm giddy as fuck. Like I'm just running to this light. You know what I'm saying? And I can assure everybody who's with me that we're going together and bringing you guys. Like, come on. That he's coming with you. Yeah. You're coming like, bro, there's no doubt about it. You feel me? But none of that stuff was enough, unfortunately. You know, there's things that Steve's went through that I won't share, 
but also that I didn't know to the very end. And because I didn't know, there was no way to know how that was eating at him and affecting him, you know? And towards the end, like, I remember him lashing out and, like, just letting certain shit out that we've never heard him say, you know? Um, but, yeah, man, like, that crushed me, bro. Like, that threw me into depression. That's why Summer Night sounded so dark. And I remember telling CJ, I think this was the day that we buried Steez. I remember telling CJ, like, yo, we can't let we can't allow ourselves to fall. We gotta be positive for everybody. And I didn't take my own advice. You know, it was sounded easy, but when it actually started to roll out, like it was, yeah, I wasn't ready for that. I was in no ready. I was in no way ready to face that um, that grief. I didn't know how to grieve. I never lost anybody in my life up to that point. I lost my grandfather, but that's old age. You know what I mean? Like, it's when you learn that people die. Like, But I never lost somebody who, like, was so instrumental in my life, you know? Yeah, I shattered my world. It's like my big brother. It's like my leader. You know what I'm saying? Like, I followed him, man. I remember because we're the same age. It's weird because when you're 17, your friends are everything. And the things you like, the movies, the music you listen to with your friends, yeah. those people are everything. Literally. And I remember when news broke about that. The weight of that, I don't know, I felt it. I, I guess I'm wondering, right. you know when you say like he was a leader... How did you move forward without that person you were following? Well, the thing was, I had already stopped following Steve's because he told me to. What do you mean? See, when we first formed Pro Era, I remember there was this day, we was like all walking to the bus stop after school. Me and Steve's, we were kind of like behind the pack. He had stopped me and I think Dirty was there. And he was like, yo, Joey, I want you to be the leader of Pro Era. And I was kind of taken aback because I'm like, you're the leader. You know what I'm saying? Like, bro, I follow you. And he was like, nah, trust me. You're going to leave from the front. I'm going to be at the back. So when you told me that, I took the baton and I ran. You know what I'm saying? And this was still when I was 15. So over the next two years, I was leading the team. That's why I was doing everything. You know what I'm saying? Because... I just saw myself as the person who had to make it happen, who had to get it done. I was also the guy with the connection. It was the bridge, you feel me? So at that time, you know, I was already kind of operating more from my own headspace and was used to it, you know? So it didn't necessarily feel like I lost a leader anymore. It felt like I lost a partner, a brother, a friend, a teacher, spiritual advisor yeah man just felt like i lost one of my people man like yeah you said once um at a point in time spiritually we were in the same boat but i wanted to take it slow and he wanted to take it fast and deep as he could go you talk about this in the new record you keep saying i didn't want to go as fast what did you mean by that because we were diving into our spiritual journeys so that's another thing that you know steve's put me on to i was always spiritual growing up but i was not familiar with the world of spirituality 
I didn't know there were terms and words and phrases for things that I felt was happening inside of me growing up. So he introduced me to like the word enlightenment, paths of enlightenment, spiritual enlightenment, chakras, third eye, pineal gland. Don't use fluoride. <laughs> you know what I mean? We on all of that at like 15, 16. You know, so when it first started, like we were both just kind of two like-minded kids who were kind of on the same shit. And it felt like I was right there with him. But then after a while, like he started consuming a lot of that knowledge. And intuition told me that I wasn't supposed to go that fast. I needed to do a combination of knowledge and experience. And I feel like that's kind of where Steve's was starting to get lost because he was obtaining all of this knowledge and he knew a lot of it, but his experience wasn't measured to his knowledge. Because he was 19. Because he was 19. I mean, at the time when he passed, but even when he started, you know, the journey. I don't know, for me, luckily, like something told me to slow down. And then the way I looked at it too, is like, you my teacher. Go ahead, tell me what you learned out there. Come back and, you know what I'm saying? Educate your little bro. In the meantime, <laughs> on this earthly level, I'm gonna do what I gotta do to lead this group. And that was his one too. Like we shared a similar interest on that. Like, I bet, yeah, that's perfect. You know what I'm saying? In his head, he's like, yeah, so I put you as a leader so I could do all this. He just started consuming a lot. Like I remember when we were on that first tour with Juicy J in 2012, that whole summer, like he had his computer and we'd be doing teenager things like talking to girls or <laughs> just, you know, he'd always smoke and stuff like that, but he would spend a lot of time on his computer on websites that I've never seen in my life, consuming information pertaining to spirituality. And he called it research, it's research time, and he took it very seriously. The sources or the websites, like I'm not sure the validity of them. That's how I felt, so I was like, you know, I'm gonna give my brother space to use his discernment to consume what it is he wanna consume. After all, he's fucking reading shit, he's learning shit. We out here consuming this horrible tour life. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's looking at us like, y'all gonna ruin y'all lives. Was it horrible? Well, when I say horrible, it's like the quality of life. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you're 17, you're being a slut on the road. <laughs> you're getting girls, like you're having sex with different women and you're on the road, you're not eating good. You ain't got no parents around. Like your hygiene is not where it's, you know what I'm saying? It's just, you're living like fucking dogs. <laughs> Some people go to college and do that. Right. You know, we went on tour. <laughs> that was your college. That was our college. And only one of us was in class. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are trying to, I think, make sense of something that is pretty hard to make sense of. And I have to say that when I got to the track on the new record, Survivor's Guilt, I felt like you had found some language around something that you were looking for language for. And I thought maybe we'd play some of that. Okay. If that's all right with you. Absolutely. You see Stilo was my bigger bro. At a point in time, spiritually, we was in the same boat. But I wanted to take it slow. He wanted to take it as fast and deep as he could go. Pause. Yeah, we had some problems, but we're brothers don't. Sure. Then I caught a little wave and headed back to shore. And that's when he started drowning. And he had no one around him. So partially, I feel it's my fault. That right there is my internal wall. The reason why I gotta feel these external flaws. The reason why I can't heal these eternal loss. The reason why I gotta feel this survivor's remorse. And here's the 
is a message to his fam I know y'all got emotional trauma that I understand But I couldn't fuck with Y'all try to tell the world I wasn't who I am And all I ever tried to do was lend a hand And get the fans to think that they the man the most King Capital to fucking go Why? I'm just trying to get my nigga hurt Get him what he deserve This one is for you This one is for you It's a beautiful song It feels like an understatement. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the best songs I've ever made. Might be. Might be. The best song. Yeah. It felt like my spirit had took a shower. And it's crazy because I started writing it in the shower. I was coming up with a rhyme scheme because I was talking to this girl and she was just telling me like this story and it inspired this rhyme scheme of the ills of being rich and rotten. And after I got out the shower, I got out and then like, you know, I, I kept playing with that rhyme scheme. And then the first line came to me, Steezy told me to get him. So I got him and I was like, hmm, I just started going deeper. And this song is, is very special to me too, because I wrote the whole song in my head. I like to write in my head because I feel like emotion is easier to come out. So when I started kind of having that dialogue with that rhyme scheme, It just kept going and going, and it was a therapeutic experience. Like, as I'm sitting there reciting it to myself, and when I got to the end of that verse, like, it made me cry. And I was like, wow, like, I was just more proud of how I put that into words. At first, I didn't think it was going to be a song I was going to release. You thought it would be just for you? Yeah, until I wrote the second verse. And I'll tell you how the second verse came about. So it was the first verse for a long time. And it was just, a, the song was just a voice memo on my phone. I have a lot of songs like that, just voice memos. You know, because I would just have the beat playing and I'd just record, boom, boom. So I wrote that December 2019. January 23rd, 2020, for the first time I go see a psychic reader. Amazing experience, by the way. Very reassuring. That was like what I took out of it the most. It was reassuring. Everything I already think and feel about myself is right. You know, I just got to keep going. But one thing she told me, she asked me, because she identified which spirits or energy was with me or in my field. And she identified Steve's and my cousin Junior. So she asked me, she was like, did you write a song recently about your brother? And when she said that, Sam, My eyes got so watery. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it. Like, how do you know that? If you wasn't actually connecting, you know? And so she said that, and then she told me that Junior was jealous of how much time that I was spending speaking on Steez. Hmm. <laughs> He's like, I'm right here too, bro. Like, I'm your right wing. He's your left wing. <laughs> I'm your right wing, though. So when she said that, I was like, I got to go back to that song. And that's when I came back on the second verse, R.I.P. My Cousin Junior B. Yeah, I know too much about him, so it was up to me. When the left wing and the right wing are gone, how the fuck do you keep going? Well, they're not gone. They became wings. When they were here, they were batteries. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They, they both played the same role for me. Meaning that big brother role, that confidence they both gave me the same feeling of reassurance and confidence literally you know they're like the same emotion the same security same comfort because junior 
came on to start working with me in um, the beginning of 2014. We barely made a year, but we got so much done in that year. And I remember venting to him. He was in his last year of college. I remember venting to him about how stressed I was and how, like, hard I was taking dealing with, like, everything. Like, you know, this was, at the time, it's like the end of 2013, you know. It's my second year in the games, you know, a year after losing Steez and, you know, still coping with that and adjusting and trying to figure shit out and be more professional and, you know, learn how to maneuver in this industry. And I was just venting to him, and he said, yo, when I'm done with school, I'm going to come help you. And um, I'm sorry. And then a month later, he came through and, uh, you know, he started working with me. He became my day-to-day manager, tour manager, basically my assistant, like everything. You know, he just became my guy, my crutch, literally. You know what I mean? Like, I depended on him. He woke me up <laughs> every morning. <laughs> When I lost Junior, I really started to feel like, why is this happening to me? I'm 19 years old and I've lost two people that were like extremely close to me. And they both died gruesomely. (laughs) They weren't at peace, you know what I'm saying? I just couldn't understand it. Like, just when I thought I was getting back on track, Junior died and it put me back in that space, you know, that that darkness. And on top of that, you know, <laughs> on top of that, I had to show up in the world. You know what I mean? I had to be Joey Badass. I had to be mindful of relationships and friendships. You know what I'm saying? Now I'm fucking timid as fuck because I'm like, am I going to lose anybody else? You know, like shit, I wanted to fucking kill myself, bro. You know, I wanted to kill myself, you know. The question was, how do you keep going? For me, it was the understanding that, one, they both played the same role in my life, right? So I knew that no matter what, whether they're here or not, they were going to want me to progress. They're going to want me to keep moving. And I just leaned on work, man. I leaned on work. Give me something so I got to fucking think about this shit, you know? But in a good way, though, because I was motivated in a way that I felt like, especially how spiritual me and Steve's was, I'm like, he's with me, you know. And juniors absorbed a lot of that shit up, too. And I'm like, if they in the same side now, I'm sure, boom, boom. So I'm like, they with me, you know. They helping me. They're instrumental to all of this. And I just got to keep pushing it. Like, I'm going to do it for them, you know. You know, it's amazing. In this process of you almost losing yourself, of saying, oh, I don't I don't even know how to keep going. I don't know why I should keep going. You put out music, you acted in films, you gave yourself to everyone else when most of us probably would have retreated. And you did that. And as painful as I know it was, because I I feel it just sitting here with you. 
I hope some part of you knows that you did something with it. Uh, you know, that same part of me that knows that is the answer to your question. Just keep doing something with it. <laughs> Emotion is by far the greatest inspiration an artist can have. I obviously hate that. That has to be the emotion, but you know what I'm saying? I'm proud of myself, I guess, for like, you know, being able to transmute that into something good. When you had a kid in 2018, what did that do for you? You know what? It gave me something to live for, Sam. It gave me something to live for. That actually was one of my initial feelings and emotions because I was depressed. I was depressed. I was still going through my depression four years later. That definitely gave me a reason to live. I stopped thinking about killing myself. Yeah, and it softened me up, made me more gentle, less hostile. Um, when I first came out, I was super like standoffy and unapproachable. I was a kid, you know what I'm saying? Like I didn't understand emotional intelligence. Now emotional intelligence is one of my biggest indications in everyday relationships and interactions. It's something that we weren't required to learn that so many people should take seriously. It changed my life, you know? And I gotta commend you on that because you have high EQ. Thank you. Yeah, um, attention to detail. <laughs> Pick up on the nonverbal cues is pretty impressive. You know? <laughs> As we leave, Remember that day in high school we were talking about? The one where the cameras came and the New York Times reporting on it? Mm -hmm. You know, there's something at the end of that video where Steve talks about the music he wants to make. And since you've so beautifully folded him into this new record, I thought we'd listen to that for a second and see where we go. Please. I'd love to hear it. Versus in the stash, murderous. You hear his pen bursting on the pad. I got him looking nervous like Kirk when he mashed. <laughs> Kill him with the trigger finger. Now they see it shining like a little dipper. I doubted I could change this planet, but we all gotta take the advantage. When I was in history classes, which is my least favorite class, I always thought about like, what would I wanna do? I would wanna make progress in the world. And that's where the most inspiration came out. So I was like, let me just try fulfill that with my homies. What, what exactly are you trying to do? I don't know. It's up to us as a group to find out. Yeah. I know what I want to achieve, but I just hope that we all can figure it out together, you know? Mm -hmm. You can hear it in his voice. He wanted to change the world with, with music. Absolutely. He really wanted to inspire lifestyle. You know, like, his mind was focused on music, clothes, food, health. Like he was taking all of those things into consideration. Music was just like the start. It was like the entry point. It was like the outlet that we could access like right away. Let's start talking about what we want to see in the world through the music, you know. We changed the world, man. When we came out in 2012, 17 years old, like, yeah, the music was one thing, but we put so much kids on the spirituality. Like we broke so many kids out of a closed mindset. We've rescued so many individuals, you know, say from the perils of society, fixed societal norms. We had kids wearing crystals on their necks, 
to raise their vibration, to open up their energy chakras. Like, what? <laughs> we did that. That fire that we lit under that group of people spread like wildfire. And now, 10 years later, spirituality is like trendy. <laughs> like everybody's doing it. It's almost annoying. Now. It's almost annoying. Like I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? I don't even want to talk about it because I live this shit. You know what I'm saying? This is embedded in me and it's not my first rodeo. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The only thing that's happening now is just all the unpacking as I get older. You know what I'm saying? So that makes the shit even better. It makes it even more dynamic now. On this new record, it feels like you're keeping the dream alive in some ways. Like your dream, Steve's dream, the dream your mother told you to follow early on. And as we go, I wonder if there's a song on this record that you look at and go, yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. That's the kind of song Steve would have wanted. It's the kind of song my mom would be proud of. I'll say Head High, man. Like, Head High is just instantly timeless to me. This is what, like, music is supposed to do. Most of the album, I made it with the mindset of, like, this is a lifestyle album. This is a celebratory album. This is a success story, you know? Like you said, I spent so many years giving myself to people. On this album, I gave myself. You know what I'm saying? I gave to myself. I spoke about myself. I spoke about, you know, what I'm enjoying, what my lifestyle is, what I'm living like right now. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I decided to be unapologetic with it because I spent my whole childhood trying to be this fucking wise man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now I'm Benjamin Button. I'm aging in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> like now I want to do 17-year-old mistakes and shit. Like it's all catching up to me now. <laughs> That's kind of what this album was. Like it became that outlet for me, but Still, even in having that fun, you know, there's a level of seriousness because I'm purposeful. You know what I'm saying? There's always something that's tied to my purpose. And um, I think Head High is just such a great showcase of that. Let's take a listen. Always on the FaceTime. He offered me his place to stay. Thank you, but I declined. First impression in my mind. Now that's a stand-up nigga. Someone I could call a friend of mine, and that's tough nigga. Shit I could talk about. Any type of stuff with him. Never gave a fuck about who didn't fuck with him. See, that's my nigga. I had to keep it the buck with him. When he played me his album, I told him what he was missing. A lot of niggas would have took that shit different. Would have thought that I was dissing. Still, we found the speed and started riffing. Shit had me reminiscing, had me thinking about Stilo Now that I can see it, so I hold my head high Till they put me below, best no till the day I die I'ma keep my heat close, this is for my niggas Who took a day to relax, hugging the block But the block ain't hug them back So we hold our head high, till they put us below Best no till the day we die, we gon' keep this heat close This is for my niggas who took a day to relax Hugging the block, but the block ain't hug us back Love that I wrote that verse, that first verse, the day that Nipsey Hussle died. That's where the emotion came from. And then I wrote the second verse when X died, who was actually my friend in real life. Nipsey I had met a couple times and we were cordial, we were cool. I was speaking more from an outside view, but the second verse with X, 
You know, it's just so personal, so real. Like that's like what's in that song is the things that I look for in music. You know, like I want to be able to relate the relatability in that song. I think it's just crazy. Even the vulnerability in it. One of my favorite songs of all time. I love that song. Thank you. My last question for you. Before you did that freestyle rap video at 15, the day before you had a premonition that said, this is going to work. This is going to happen. No doubt about it. (laughs) When you walked into Edward R. Murrow High School, you saw the wall of stars and you said, I am going to be there. When your mom said, follow your dreams, you did the thing that kids rarely do, which is listen. Told me just stay true to myself. So now that you're at 27 and you actualized so many of those dreams, what do you want for yourself now? I believe that there will be no part of my life where I'm not focused on becoming better. Better rapper, better father, just better at everything that I do. So I have a 20-year plan written down, and I broke it down to five-year increments. Life is a series of levels, you know what I mean? It's like, okay, we get through the first five floors. Keep going. Eventually, you're going to hit a ceiling that happens to be the roof, and you break through the roof, and now you have the sky above your head. You get to that limitless point. But then again, you got to start building. You know what I mean? Because if you just stay up there in the sky, that's like the stand for nothing, fall for anything type of space. Like, this is just a chapter. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I got to get all my checkpoints done right now. Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. (laughs) That's one on my 20 year. (laughs) That's one of my 20 years. I'll give you one of those. But I think I'll do it in 10. But whatever. I'm not looking for you, E-Guy. I'm not looking for you. You're ugly. (laughs) Another one, like, five years is like, you know, it's certain roles that I want to land. So it's, it's like I always am driven by something. You know what I mean? Like, there's no roadblock for me. There's no end of the road for me for 20 years. It's pretty much what I mean. Mm-hmm. So what's next? A whole fucking lot. Another chapter, and it's only going to be greater. You know, it's only going to be greater. Well, I have to say that um, given that you and I are both 27, I've so enjoyed this chapter of your life and all that you made in that time and all that you produced in me and my friends in the last decade. I thank you for that. And I so look forward to your next chapter, wherever it takes you. Thank you. Joey Badass, thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. We did it. We sure did. Man, I got to hand it to you, brother. That was one of the greatest interviews I've ever done.
And that's our show. Special thanks this week to Bradley Bledsoe and Nick Durrell at Orienteer, the good people at Columbia Records, the two friends that actually introduced me to today's guest, Harrison Cameron and Ian Jones, and of course, the one and only Joey Badass. You can listen to his new record, 2000, wherever you get your music. To learn more about Joey and his work, visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. On the site, you'll find our back catalog of over 250 episodes. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I'd recommend our talks with Ben Staples, Kevin Abstract, Janelle Monet, Run the Jewels, Lord, Brittany Howard, Questlove, and Sid. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to support TalkEasy by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. If you want to support the show in other ways, the best thing you can do is share the show with a friend. The second best thing you can do is rate this program on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Reviewing the show on these platforms is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at iHeartMedia in New York City. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and Lindsay Ellis. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Photographs this week are by Kyle Manning. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gabrzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Abu Zafar, Lulu Phillip, Patrice Lee, Kaylin Ung, and Paulina Suarez. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Eric Sandler, Nicole Morano, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with Abby Jacobson. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.